And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're gonna tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Welcome to The Audible, presented by Trader Joe's. I'm Stuart Mandel, joined as always by Bruce Feldman on Monday morning. Uh, Bruce, Saturday was not your typical college football Saturday. The injury, the brutal injury for Tua Tonga Vailoa just kind of loomed over the whole day and, and frankly the whole weekend. Um, as we're recording, like right before we went on to record this, we get a an email from Alabama. Uh, the procedure He had his surgery Monday in Houston. The procedure went as planned and he is resting comfortably. Tua's prognosis is excellent and we expect him to make a full recovery. He will return to Tuscaloosa in the next several days to begin his rehab on his hip injury. Um, we know that uh, we're cognizant of the fact that this has been covered extensively to the, already. I mean, you can go on The Athletic and read six or seven uh, stories probably by now on Tua, including a couple by myself. But Bruce, you and I were talking before we came on about how rare it is for one of the biggest, if not the biggest stars in the sport, to suffer such a serious injury yeah you started to go through uh, your mind and think okay what kind of parallels i'm not just talking about the injury itself but just where you see somebody who's at the top of their game and like you said arguably the biggest star in college football and then all of a sudden to have it such a dramatic turn and such a you know such a heartbreaking situation uh, the, the the ones that came to mind thinking about it, you know, last, uh, you know, we had Mackenzie Milton in that situation. It was pretty dire where at one point they worried he might lose his leg uh, at UCF. And obviously that's his recovery is still going on. Uh, I thought back to Jalen Smith, the All-American linebacker Notre Dame. He got hurt in the bowl game against, uh, against Ohio State. And Willis McGahee, who was a the star running back in college football that year and it was on the biggest stage against also against Ohio State and that was uh in the national title game it was a gruesome injury and those two the the latter two Jalen Smith and McGahee uh they were certainly in big games but they were also in their last college game and they were seen as career altering injuries um you know this one we're still in the early stages of it but just uh I don't know what I know. You've wrote a wrote, wrote a column about this, and probably wrote two columns about it. I think. Um, what was your takeaway now that we've had forty eight hours to kind of process what what happened? Um, it was it was a dark day. It felt like I know, and and I don't mean this to be um, make light of any other college players that have injuries. It's just obviously uh, different when it's a guy of his magnitude and. And then to almost immediately, once we knew the diagnosis, and, and credit to our colleague, by the way, Aaron Suttles, who broke the news of um, 
uh, of the severe of what the diagnosis was and the severity of it. You can listen to Aaron on his podcast, his Alabama podcast, Second and Twenty Six, uh, wherever you get podcasts. Um, you know the comparisons to Bo Jackson, and and you know you and I are old enough to remember that very well. He was. I don't think it's a stretch to say the biggest star in professional sports at that time because he has, was doing both baseball and football, and it was uh, and me as a as a as a Cincinnati Bengals fan as a kid was watching that playoff game and you would have never guessed at that time that that was going to be the end end of his career. Um, so when that starts getting thrown around, I think you know you're going into panic mode. Like how awful would this be if he if if this isn't just the end of his season at Alabama, but totally shelves his NFL career. I think with a little bit of distance now, it seems like, I mean, you can't say for sure, but the you know, having now gone back and read all about Bo Jackson, there were some pretty rare complications that came out of his injury that I, I would hope will be avoided here with advances in, in treatment and just, I'm sure he's getting the absolute best treatment you can possibly get uh, both on the Alabama end and then the, the surgery that, you know, they flew him to Houston to work with one of the best surgeons. Uh, I don't think it's going to get to that. I hope not. Uh, but certainly the trajectory that we all assumed he was on to be, if you know, the number one quarterback and, and possibly the number one pick next year is now up in the air. And uh, it's just sad. I mean, I had so much fun watching this guy and I'm realizing that, I think we, I mean, I can't speak for everybody, but I know I kind of started to take him for granted. He, I, you know, we do that weekly Heisman's drop hole. I don't think I ever had him number one on my Heisman ballot this year because first it was Jalen Hurts and, and for a long stretch now, Joe Burrow. And yet here is a guy who is going to end his college career having not just broken but shattered several NCAA career records for pass efficiency, yards per attempt, and the crazy one is he threw a touchdown on 12% of his passes. The previous record was 9.9. So it feels a little weird to do this, but given the the, the prognosis, and as you said earlier from, from Alabama's statement this morning, that his prognosis is excellent and he's expected to make a full recovery, his, his uh, career at Alabama is an interest, going to be an interesting one to look back at. Obviously, it's... And part of this, I think, is related to Tua and his talent in just that he really helped Alabama usher forward into a different era of its offense. And maybe it was just because Tua and these receivers that they have are are just so gifted. Maybe maybe they won't quite do the same thing. I don't know. Bryce Young, who's a a really gifted dual-threat quarterback, who's, who's committed there, maybe he jumps into the starting job next year and maybe it's it's starting to look like Oklahoma's offense. Who knows? But, um, you know, when you think about some of the great quarterbacks, and Alabama has had football legends who played quarterback there, whether it's it's Bart Starr or Joe Namath, but obviously they, they played in a different era where it was in the ball. You know, if you look at their statistics, it's nothing like what we see now and certainly nothing like some of the numbers you just mentioned. So I'll start. I'll ask you to start this off. How do you see Tua's legacy as a college football? How do you think he will be remembered? I think it's going to be fascinating to look back five or ten years from now. I think he will probably be one of those guys, Andrew Luck comes to mind, who you look back at and go, I can't believe he never won the Heisman. Now, I'm not saying 
Kyler Murray shouldn't have won it. it, it again, it, injuries are really the key theme here. If he doesn't get injured in the SEC championship game, if, it, if, if that had happened in week six and he, you know, and Jalen Hurts had to come back and rescue them, uh, I think he probably still wins the Heisman. It was the last game of the season. It was um, Kyler Murray had about as hot a finish to the season as you could. Uh, and then obviously he's not going to get that chance this year. I don't think he would have won it. I think Joe Burrow's going to take it home. Uh, but he could have at least gotten back to New York. And then obviously everybody's always going to remember the 41-yard touchdown pass. The weird thing is that that's he that will that still ends up as the highlight of his college career. The first time we really saw him for everything he did after that, obviously nothing. You know, he didn't lead them to victory in the SEC championship last year. He lost handily in the one national championship game he started, and then obviously the biggest game of the, of his what would end up being his last year, he loses to LSU. So I guess to answer your question, it's a little bit of a mixed bag. But I do think, and you and you alluded to this, what he will probably most be remembered for is Alabama was the dynasty in college football for a decade doing it a certain way, and he came in and just completely changed it, turned them into up-tempo, wide-open passing team. And whether that continues, we'll see. I think, you know, and you look at how LSU has responded to that, uh, I think he probably helped usher in a completely new era in the SEC. I don't think going forward the you're going to win the sec or certainly the national championship with no disrespect to this guy jake coker as your quarterback i just think uh the trend that had already kind of reached out to most of the rest of the country is now a a a central part of the sec and tua has a lot to do with that yeah it's interesting it really is i mean he basically played you know, he's played in eight games as a freshman, but he didn't play a lot in eight games really until the end. And then last year was a full season, and this year was nine games. It's it's, uh, it's it's an interesting situation. There's a lot of guys I think in, in looking back, you're like, how did that guy not win the Heisman? Right? I feel like there's. I think we're going to say that about Deshaun Watson. I think there's a handful of guys who fit in that category. I mean, the truth is, Tua has played in an era where there were some pretty amazing quarterback seasons that 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 have gone that have uh, taken place. In addition to him, in this case, I think if the injury didn't happen, my hunch is he's not winning the Heisman. I don't think. And the question now, and again, it's there's a couple of days have passed. So what do we make, because we talked a little bit last week about, okay, does Alabama have a realistic shot at the playoff? Where do you see Alabama's chances right now coming out of this? They still, now they have Western Carolina and then they have an Auburn team that has three losses. What, I mean, do they have much of a shot? Is it is it pretty remote at this point? I mean, the, I'm sure the committee is going to say, and this I'm going to throw to you because we've both been through the committee's um, the committee's mock process. And I don't think there's a relevant example. As much as we can mention some of these other guys that got injured, there isn't a relevant example to what I'm about to say that they've had. So much of what Alabama's argument, it was going to have to be made on the eyeball test. That's where it was going to be because the resume they have, whether they beat Auburn 48 to 3 or beat them 14 to 13, 
they're not going to have a strong resume. They're just not, right? So they're going to have one noteworthy win if they get it, and that's Auburn. After that, they lost at home to LSU, and it's just not going to carry a ton of weight without the eyeball test. Well, the uh, a big part of that eyeball test was having a, the great quarterback as, as the guy running the show and those receivers. The receivers are still there, but I think there's going to be some skepticism on Mac Jones at this point. So what do you think that part of it does to Alabama's playoff chances? I don't want to say they're toast because, you know, they are still, as of this past week, the number five team in the country. And uh, and obviously we don't know what's going to go on in the rest of the country. But I think it, it, it would surprise me at this point if we see them in the playoff. I mean, frankly, I'm not sure they're going to beat Auburn. Uh, we shall see. Now, Gary Danielson who um, I don't want to say he's on the SEC payroll, but he, he's often known to kind of <laughs> go, go strong, go strong for the conference when it comes to these things. I mean, it didn't take long for him during the uh, Auburn-Georgia broadcast to say if they if they beat uh, Auburn with um, Mac Jones, they're in the playoff. And use the, rel- use the example of Cardell Jones, which obviously is the you know, Ohio State losing JT Barrett in the Michigan game that year is the closest comparison we have. My recollection is the committee did not just automatically downgrade them. They had a good opportunity to kind of wait and see, okay, well, let's see how they look uh, without them against Wisconsin. And the answer was they beat Wisconsin 59 nothing. If Mac Jones beats Auburn 59 nothing, they're probably going to make the playoff, let's be honest. I don't think that's going to happen. And also, it's not even necessarily the same situation because – not only did Ohio State win that game, beat, beat them handily with Cardell Jones, they won the Big Ten because of it. Alabama would be beating what would then become an 8-4 and four Auburn team and would not win uh, the SEC championship. So I think uh, I think this hurt. I, I think it's not um, – I don't like their chances as much as I did a week ago. I think they were, they're going to need a lot of help because I think a 12-1 Pac-12 champ not only probably would get it but should get it. And also, and this will lead to what we should talk about next, I don't know why people are forgetting about the Big 12 and all this. You know, it's not as simple as if Oregon or Utah goes 12-1 and and Alabama's 11-1, and then the Pac-12 gets it. Uh, thanks to that ridiculous comeback the other night, I think Oklahoma's still very much alive in this. Yeah, just to, to finish up what you were saying about Gary's point, and I'll be honest, I didn't hear it, so I... I can't maybe there was something more to it but that Ohio State team with Cardell Jones yeah they did win the Big Ten that's a huge asterisk difference also they went to Michigan State who was number seven in the country and they beat them by double digits that's a much better win too than anything Alabama has and will have even if they do beat Auburn because if they beat Auburn Auburn's a four loss team Auburn's not going to be in the top 15 and that's going to be your best win whereas to me, and I, I don't think I disagree. If they beat Auburn, if they beat Auburn by forty, I don't think that's. I don't think you can get enough push off of one game. That'll be a bigger problem for Gus Gus Malzahn than it will be a boost for for Alabama. I predict. You um, well, but there's going to be a strong, just like there was a strong, strong push for Georgia at the end of last year. And the, the, the push didn't the F- help, though, right? Right. Ultimately, it didn't work, but I, you know. Backing away from the playoff thing for a second, can we just acknowledge that Alabama, which is over the past decade, right, 
as down as they've been, they've they've caught a lot of breaks along the way. This it just feels like this isn't their year. They they had bad injuries before they even got into the season, losing Dylan Moses. Their defense is not what it usually is. And then, by the way, in this game, they also lost Raekwon Davis, one of their top defensive linemen. Uh, Henry Ruggs is hurt. We don't. He might be back for the Iron Bowl. Um, it just it just seems like it's not their year, and it's hard to make the case that they're one of the four best teams without their best player. So, um, yeah, I I, I think it, it, it's it's not much of an argument to be honest. Now, if uh, Utah, for example, is the twelve and one Pac twelve champ. Look at Utah's schedule and who they've beaten. It's not any better than Alabama's to this point. The difference is they would add a huge win in the conference championship game. Oregon, I'm sure you will hear a million times, well, uh, Oregon couldn't beat Auburn. Alabama beat them or beat them handily. Therefore, Alabama's better. Uh, there will be there will be still. I wouldn't I wouldn't assume this is over. Uh, there'll, there'll be a lot of drawing of sides in this one. All right, so you had asked me about the Big 12. So Oklahoma got itself in a hole and then was able to rally and win in Waco. That is certainly a good win for the Sooners. My, my uh, Fox Sports crew has them this weekend hosting TCU. Uh, it was interesting just as a personal side to watch the game with our crew Saturday night from a, uh, a bar in Iowa, in Iowa City or the Iowa City area. And um, just... If Baylor had held on, we were going to Waco. And if they didn't, we we're going to Norman. We're going back to Norman. So here they are. Um, I'm curious, is just because I feel like these are, are now connected. You mentioned Utah. You mentioned Oregon. I mean, I think what, what kind of hurts both conferences, to be honest, is you have really, in the case of the Pac-12, you have two teams that have clearly pushed out in front. You know who has the next best record in the Pac-12 still? Washington. No. USC. Oh, right, because they've played an extra game. Because they, well, they've, I mean, Washington's played one less game at this point. USC is sitting there at 7-4. and four. I mean, that's, that's your reality. So, whereas Utah lost at USC on a Friday night, and right now I would say Washington's best or I'm sorry Oregon's best win is at Washington and they're only a six and four Washington team so until they get to face each other they're going to need the push whereas here's Oklahoma I don't think it's 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 not helping Oklahoma at all that Texas has nosedived and is now six and four and maybe staring at six and five after going to Waco this weekend and I, I bring that up because I think to me, this argument feels like unless something crazy happens in the SEC or the Big Ten, which it could, uh, we're looking at Big Big Twelve champ if it's Oklahoma or Pac twelve champ, whoever they are. I don't know who has the better argument right now between Oregon and Utah. The way this shapes up, I mean, does it? Come I mean, resume wise, it's Oregon. Utah, I think, is just crushing people, and that's that obviously. Why resume-wise is it is it Oregon? Why do you think it's a big difference? Well, the difference is um, Oregon beat. You just mentioned USC has the next best record. Oregon beat them handily on the road. US Utah lost to them. Uh, I gamed it out here last night, actually, uh, looking at the 
looking at Oklahoma in this hypothetical scenario versus Oregon without accounting for upsets, which I'm sure they'll be. This is just kind of ballpark records of what the final records would be. Oklahoma out of conference will have beaten what I have down as a three and nine Houston team and a five and seven UCLA team and an FCS team. So not great. Then they would have two wins over what would then be 11 and two Baylor team. I don't know who's going to win Baylor, Texas this week, but let's just assume Baylor. A road win at eight and four Oklahoma State, a home win over eight and four Iowa State, and then two more wins over bowl teams, Texas and TCU. So if you're keeping track, that is probably three top twenty-five TCU wins. Is not definitely a bowl team, by the way. No, uh, they're five and five. But their last game is against somebody bad. I can't remember. Um, so you're looking at, I mean, Baylor. That would be two top twenty-five wins. Oklahoma State at 8-4 and four, since they're in the committee's top 25 already I think would probably still be there. So that's three top 25 wins and six bowl teams, okay? Oregon, lost to Auburn. So they are non-conference. They beat a Nevada team that I think will finish 7-5 and five, and an FCS team. Then in conference, they would have the big one over 11-2 Utah. At 8-4 and four, Washington, home against 8-4 and four, USC. Six and six Cal, six and six Washington State, six and six ASU. All of those last three could go either way. I mean, they could make a bowl. They might go five and seven. They're all kind of jumbled together. Uh, to me, that's Oklahoma has the better resume. I think they do at this point. I don't know if they're gonna if it's gonna feel like that if they beat Baylor twice and Oregon beats Utah. Now is that because you Baylor's considered not like as legitimate as Utah as winning beating Utah, or is it because of the way it's happening? Where no, I think it's it's because of that. I also think I, I think it is because of that. To be honest, um, if you ask because, me, well, who do I? No, think to be it, clear, it's be, I'm saying is it because you don't consider Baylor to be legitimate, or is it because Oregon's winning pretty handily these? You know, recently, whereas Oklahoma needed to stop a two-point conversion to beat Iowa State and a massive comeback to beat Baylor. I, I don't want to say I don't consider Baylor legitimate, but Baylor was 13. They lost at home. I feel like, if you ask me, I think both Utah and Oregon are better teams than Baylor is. And I would agree with that. to me, that the winner of that game will get a much bigger boost than, than Oklahoma will if they beat Baylor a second time. Yeah, because if Oklahoma beats Baylor a second time, I would assume Baylor would be around, still around 13, something like that, whereas Utah and Oregon, if they win out, are going to go into that game both ranked in the top seven, maybe top six. So you, Pac-12 gets the better closing argument, no question about that. Oklahoma, I think, would have more quality wins in the course of the season. And then I just think it also comes down to who do you believe in more? And it's hard to say that now. We're not going to see We haven't seen how these games play out. Um, I think that half, halftime of that game, everybody's like, Oklahoma's toast. They've totally imploded. Their defense is awful now. And then he turned around in the second half and shut out Baylor. Uh, and you knew their offense. I mean, I knew their offense would get it in gear and score some points in the second half. 
although Jalen Hurts fumbling as he went into the end zone for his third turnover of the game made me doubt that briefly. But I would not have guessed they would shut out Baylor in the second half. That's a strong performance by the defense. And, you know, we'll see. If they can get to 12-1, and one, uh, I, I doubt you'll still be sitting there going, I don't know, they're so shaky. They, they would have done something to get to that point. Um, by the way, we haven't even met. Like, I guess we both assume that if Baylor wins the Big 12 at 12-1, and one, they wouldn't have a chance. I think they would have a much lesser chance, to be honest, than than I would put for the winner of Utah, Oregon. But why just, just, no, I'm just throwing this out there. Kind of devil's advocate. I agree. But given that the big 12 plays a round Robin schedule, which means Oklahoma and Baylor would have played the exact same slate of conference games. Why is Oklahoma at 12 and one right in the mix and Baylor at 12 and one is not. You know, I, I, again, I just go by what kind of how I feel about this. I mean, I look at, at uh, Baylor, and they've had a lot of close calls. I mean, they, here, I'm going to go through this. Rice is horrible. They beat Rice by eight points. They, they won at home over Iowa State by two. They won at home over Texas, State, Texas Tech by three. They won at home over West Virginia by three. They barely survived at TCU in overtime. I mean, that's where I'm at with them. Now, look, they'll play Texas, which probably gets more clout than any 6-4 and four team is going <laughs> to. If they beat Texas, Texas will, will be a 6-5 and five team. You know, that's not... I don't think they're going to get much of a bounce. And that. then they play at Kansas, who is not as awful as they've been, but still pretty awful. So I just don't see... Again, their their best win by far would be against Oklahoma, and then after that, I guess it would be at Oklahoma State, where they 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 kind of spanked the Cowboys pretty good. But after that, it's just a lot of close wins. Again, I don't want to. I I don't like this part where I feel like I disparage something some somebody who has had a good season. But if you're asking me compared to the other two, and look, maybe if they beat Oklahoma handily, then. You know what? You you kind of, we're all kind of creatures of the moment. We'll think differently, but I think Baylor is a real long shot because of because of uh, unless something crazy happens in the Pac-12, you're going to get a one-loss Pac-12 champ. I, I agree. Um, I think that for all the, all the reasons you said, it's hard to sit there and say Baylor could could even really remotely be considered one of the four best teams. You know, the non-conference schedule was brutal. Now, Oklahoma, you know, Houston's going to end up being 3-9. and nine. UCLA could end up being 5-7. and seven. It's not like these are great teams, but they're not Rice and Stephen F. Austin. Uh, I do think that as much as they like to brag, the, the committee, oh, we don't do preseason polls, they kind of do because in 2014, Baylor also played nobody out of conference and was 11-1 and one at the end of the year, and they were... They were always in that debate, and they finished number five. But that's because they were so good the year before, too, with Art Bryles. Like, they were trucking people. And Baylor, obviously, this year has come out of complete nowhere. I think if they had had a – if this were – this same exact Baylor season was playing out a year after going 9-3, and three, they'd probably be – they wouldn't be have been 13th in last week's committee rankings. Can I ask you one wild card question? And you could pro- – you're probably going to dismiss mm-hmm. it really quick, but I'm just – it just kind of came into my head – and 
I wonder about the possibility of it. If, and this is a huge if, if Wisconsin wins at Minnesota, granted Minnesota now has a loss, and then beats Ohio State to avenge Ohio, the, the blowout loss to Ohio State, any chance a two-loss Big Ten champ could get in? Gosh, who, who let's see. To this point, Wisconsin's big win is Michigan. They crushed uh, Michigan. They crushed Michigan. Yeah, I mean, I think it would be kind of like Auburn a couple years ago where there w- it was a given that if Auburn beat Georgia in the SEC title, they would have been in at, with, a, with as a two-loss SEC champion. Wouldn't it be kind of like that? Yeah, I mean, I'm looking. We just had Minnesota. They obviously lost, and that game – now, I'm guessing Minnesota, by the time the, the rankings will come out, will probably be around 12 or 13 or something like that. And if they lost again, that wouldn't help. Now, the game is on the road. But I just think if you beat Ohio State in the title game, you're going to get a big jolt. You're going to get a big boost. I just don't know if anybody's ready for a two-loss Big Ten champ to, to, to get into the playoff. Well, that Ohio State angle is also why... Now, look, I think Minnesota is a little bit like Baylor, where it's hard to actually realistically think they could end up being viewed as one of the four best teams. But, you know, I said, this started with a a tweet of somebody saying, you know, Kinnick Stadium is where dreams go to die. And I'm like, well, you know, they're not going to go undefeated, but it really didn't change anything for Minnesota. They can still win the Big Ten East. I'm sorry, Big Ten West. And if they did that, and then beat Ohio State in the championship game, they'd be in the playoff. It's not even like a question to me. They would have beaten top 10 Penn State, top 10 to 15 Wisconsin, and top 2 Ohio State. And people are like, you're crazy. They're done. I'm like, why? Why are they done? That would be a hell of a resume. I don't think they're going to do it. Uh, But the chance to beat Ohio State in the Big Ten championship game. Now we're saying that, and by the way, Ohio State plays a top 10 team this week, and Columbus, I will be there. It just seems like nobody, especially Vegas, is giving the Nittany Lions a chance in this game. We'll get to that game uh, in our next podcast in a few days. It is, I think it is worth noting, I'm not picking Penn State at this point, but this game, this matchup has been really close in the last few years. That's why I was pretty surprised at the 19-point spread. Yes. Because I would actually say Penn State is... is I don't even think it's a question, a better team than they were last season when it came, you know, Ohio State made a late comeback to win by a point. Now, Ohio State is on a whole other level from where they were last year and, frankly, where they've been, I think, since at least the the national title team. Uh, it's interesting. They LSU is the number one team in the country, and they should be, given their resume. But statistically, Ohio State and Clemson are both in the top five or six in offense and defense. They're the quote-unquote complete teams, whereas LSU, uh, did you see any of the Ole Miss game the other night? I did. I watched quite a bit of it, actually. How, how did you feel watching, and it was so Rich Rod, right, with the, the zone read quarterback keepers. I mean, he, that quarterback uh, was just shredding LSU in the second half. Yeah, I mean, what you saw was a lot of bad angles and a lot of missed tackles. And I think, you know, I don't know how close to 100% Grant Delpit is, but he went from being, last year, arguably 
the best defensive player in college football to really having a, a rough season while LSU has had, on the other side of the ball, a great season. And I think what you saw was just a lot of guys who were either out of position or just couldn't get the guy on the ground. And that has been an issue for LSU quite a bit this year. I don't think it's an issue that you can't get fixed. And I don't know, again, I don't know the health of some of these guys because Delpit was banged up a couple of weeks ago. But that was a problem. I mean, when you have plays that, okay, that play should go for eight or ten and it goes for touchdowns, I mean, that's an issue on the back end. And Ole Miss ran. Go ahead. No, and I mean, that that's something that I think, I mean, Monday around LSU was to tell the truth Monday, the truth isn't pretty uh, for that side of the ball. And they got to get it fixed sooner than later because they're going to play a good offense in two weeks uh, when Texas A&M visits and they're going to play a really good running team when Georgia, you know, assuming that they make through that to get Georgia. So uh, that's that's something that is a big challenge for Dave Aranda on that side of the ball for a defense that has been they've been banged up. You talk about the Alabama injuries. They've been banged up on that side of the ball significantly, but they still have guys who are talented guys who are on the field and they got to get it shored up soon. And it's not like this was the first time this happened. Second halves have been a problem for that team against Texas, against Alabama, and then in this game against Ole Miss. So we all kind of universally agree, right, that three teams, LSU, Ohio State, and Clemson, have separated themselves from the pack. I just want to throw a stat at you real quick um total defense yards per play allowed in the country nationally number one ohio state number two clemson lsu 53rd um here's my hot take you can send it to freezing cold takes if you want lsu is not going to win the national title this year you cannot win a national title you cannot beat those teams once you get to the final four maybe the championship game being that mediocre on that side of the ball. Yeah, they I, I agree. They got to they they got to get better. They have to fix that. But can you I mean it's one thing to say that 5 games into the season. 10 games in can you really fix it? I don't know. I I will say this and I'm again I'm not saying LSU I think would beat Clemson for sure, but they're not playing the same kind of competition at this point at all. Oh, no, absolutely. I mean, who's the best offense but the best two offenses Clemson has seen this year? Well, there's there's no question about that. It's not even it's not even close and that's why I have no problem ranking LSU number 1 right now. Maybe Ohio State, you know, supplants them next week, but I can't justify putting Clemson higher than third. That being said, Clemson is just annihilating people. 52 to 3 against Wake the other day. And I think that we both know that um, Brent Venables like, do you really think that once they play one of these teams, their defense is going to get totally exposed as a fraud? I don't think so, no. But I, again, I think you're using stats where at some point the stats are a little bit... I think you have to use some context here. Okay, let me look up a opponent-adjusted uh, one real quick. I mean, we're going to... You know, Wake Forest was without the by far the best weapon they have, They're, and they still don't have the comparable talent. How about I read this off to you while you do that? These are the offenses that Clemson has faced. Georgia Tech, which is making a huge transition from the Paul Johnson era. Texas A&M, that's a pretty good offense, and they did a good job with it. Syracuse has been awful this year. Charlotte, 
They barely survived North Carolina. FSU's offense isn't very good. Louisville, BC, Wofford, NC State, Wake Forest. The Clemson part of it, Clemson has played nobody. We, we agree. They're just, but they are doing to those teams what a very good team should do. So, to your, given what you're saying, I looked up Bill Connolly's SP plus rankings. Those are opponent adjusted. LSU fares a little bit better in that. Ohio State has, still has the number one defense in his. Clemson has the number three defense. LSU number twenty nine. Not quite as drastic as the um, if you're going just on yards per play. Here's my theory. You want to hear my theory? Sure. I think that LSU is is kind of a Big Twelve team right now, and or you know what you usually think of as a Big Twelve team, and they are suffering from something that we've seen a lot of teams that certainly the air raid teams go through where it's hard to do both. If you have a really uh, uh, high, it's not so much that they're high scoring, it's that they score so quickly, your defense can get worn out. And I think that it's not a coincidence that this is happening to uh, happening to LSU in the second halves of these games. Well, you know who that would fall into that category, Stu? Stu, you know who would fall in that same category, though? Alabama. Well, it's kind of happened to them, hasn't it? Since the Tua era began last year, they have not been as dominant as they usually are in defense. I don't know if I I think your theory is a little bit is a little bit loose. The only program recently that has consistently shown it can have a wide open high scoring offense and a dominant defense is Clemson. Um, I think Ohio State is probably that kind of team this year, but it's not but they're not it's still not the same kind of offense LSU's running. I don't disagree with what you said before. I don't. I think the the theory behind it is pretty flimsy. Okay, fair enough. Just throwing it out there. Could be. To, could you get? I could get proven totally wrong um, in the playoff. And we're we're just looking right past the Georgia no, we're game. Not. The I mean, I, as I mentioned before, that's a that's a team that can really run the football. And Jake Fromm has played a lot of big games. I mean, they could certainly get gashed by that Georgia team. So we'll see. Well, and Georgia and Georgia is by as I think going to be quite clearly the best defense they faced to this point. Although Auburn's is pretty good as well. Before we get to the mailbag, I want to revisit something you said in the summer that kind of raised eyebrows at the time, and now seems um, like you are a prophet. You predicted—I don't know if you flat out said it will happen—but you said strong possibility that Mark D'Antonio retires after the season. And at that time, it wasn't nobody knew what kind of season they were going to have well it's been a pretty miserable season michigan beats them 44 to 10 the other day uh, has completely flipped that rivalry which michigan state dominated for a long time under d'antonio they have now lost five straight big 10 games they are four and six two and five in the big 10 um their ad came out last week though and said you know d'antonio is absolutely no risk of losing his job and i think we both agree they're not going to fire him but how does it game this out for me? Because I'm having a hard time envisioning him coming back under these circumstances where basically if he does come back, he's going to have to fire a lot of people and blow up the program. Well, that's where I think it comes back to. You talk to some people who know, know Mark D'Antonio well, and the issue that they diagnose it as, and it's going to be weird to say it just like this, but he has been too loyal to a lot of his longtime assistants. And some of these guys probably should have 
maybe he should have shaken up the staff and he shook it up but but a lot of these guys just moved to different positions where he probably should have brought in some new blood and the question is going to be if he's forced to make some some drastic moves which means hire new guys and move out some old ones will he do it or will he or will he say you know what I'm not doing that you want to force those changes? Let somebody else run your program. And I don't know the answer to that. I always got the impression Mark D'Antonio was kind of a guy who's going to wanted to go out on his own terms. And granted, they have two winnable games, very winnable games to finish the year up. But they just got blown off the field by their arch rival. And they're limping to the finish line. And so... I don't know. I mean, what's what's your your hunch on how this is going to play out this this over the next month or two? Yeah, my hunch is that he he hangs it up. Um, and now I did see. Um, I don't think anybody knows for sure. I don't think he's told anybody anything. I don't think he's he's got some master plan hashed out. I'm sure he's probably pretty consumed with the week to week. Now Michigan State does have a chance to at least soften things here because they end the season playing Rutgers in Maryland. So I would assume they're going to win those, get to six and six and go to a bowl game. And maybe then, you know, not that he would be going out on a high note, but it wouldn't be quite as, as brutal as going four and eight and calling it quits. Right. Got him to a bowl game, but Hey, you know, this feels like the right time to step aside. Um, see if somebody else can can get it going in the right direction otherwise you're going to get into one of these um uh standoffs that and i'm not putting mark d'antonio anywhere near the category of these two guys in terms of their careers but i mean you remember how year after year bobby bowden would would dig in and and resist making the changes he needed to make when they were quite clearly slumping into mediocrity joe paterno same thing you know, when, when Mark D'Antonio, when you got the winningest coach in the history of your program, you can't really force him to do anything, I don't think. But, you know, he's got to realize that the way things are going is not working. Yeah, well, I, you know, this could be a situation that could play out into early January. Um, that puts that certainly puts, uh, given the early signing period, it would put Michigan State in a delicate spot if it went in a different direction. But... Um, you know, we'll have to wait and see, to be honest. Well, and one other quick thing we should have noted that, that is like a, a subplot in this. Mark D'Antonio is, is owed a huge one-time bon- retention bonus if he's still there. Right, that's why I said we'll have to wait until then, and that's the timing versus the early signing period, which is in mid-December. But anything can be negotiated. You know, if he decided on December 2nd that he wants to retire, but... Uh, still wants to have money, right? They could they could figure something out. Okay, Stu, ready to get to the mailbag? I am. As always, you can send your emails to uh, theaudiblepod at gmail.com. Back to the playoff discussion we were having earlier, John and Marilyn. On last week's podcast, both Stuart and Bruce expressed skepticism about using the eye test to select the four playoff teams noting that you have to respect the results of the actual games. I actually agree. But if you're going to dismiss the eye test, doesn't that imply that the committee really ought to be selecting the four most deserving teams instead of the four best teams? Well, so 
who would fit into that category is who's more like if we're to do this i mean would you be making the argument that clemson isn't deserving because their schedule isn't great would you make the just i mean they're still undefeated and i think you have to do that i just don't know who fits in the category of because some of some of the deserving part is i think that changes how you think you and i both do these pre a lot of preseason predictions we're not beholden to them three months later. I know there's been times where you've gotten off something you thought one way or the other uh, going into the year. I mean, look, I picked LSU to go uh, ten and two. I wasn't picking them to beat Alabama three months ago, but a week before the game, I was confident that LSU was going to win in Tuscaloosa. I mean, so that point is. The deserving part and sometimes what you see on the field, I think, ties into how you see who's best and who's not. I think the, the key part is is to that old line, it's a fluid situation, and be open to, to having your mind changed by what you see on the field. I mean, do you see it any differently? I think the committee is trying to do both. You know, they say, oh, it's definitely for best, not for most deserving. But uh, it's really convenient for them if, you can, if, if they, they line up. Um, cause yeah, if you were strictly saying most deserving, I, to your point, yeah, I don't, Clemson's probably doesn't have one of the four most deserving resumes right now. I'm not sure Utah does. Um, but, but I test, which is really code for, they keep blowing people out, uh, says that those teams belong where they are. Um, a great example though, of where they probably, it, I'm trying to say here. I think a great example of of this dilemma or this this thing that they have to go back and forth between the Ohio State team in 2015, the year after they uh, won the national title, still had Joey Bosa, Ezekiel Elliott, and all those guys, but lost to Michigan State at home, which kept them out of the Big Ten title game, and didn't have kind of like Alabama this year, just didn't have a lot of big time win i don't think they had i mean they might have had like one top 25 win that year i don't remember exactly so they didn't make the playoff and on the last day of the season that iowa team that went 12 and 0 and came within 30 seconds of making the big 10 title game let's be honest nobody thought that they were a better team than ohio state and yet they stayed above ohio state in the final rankings and got to go to the rose bowl because of that that tells you that there is a most deserving component to this Okay, uh, moving on. Our next question is from Andrew Stolowitz. Hi, guys. Is there any viable explanation as to why Nebraska extended the contract of Scott Frost, who came into Saturday's game with an 8-13 and record and five years left on his existing contract, other than it being a complete overreaction to the ESPN.com article early in the week on whether Nebraska football's best days were in the past? Willie Taggart didn't even make it past the second year of his contract, and I think it's reasonable to think that Florida State, given its location and conference, is a better job than Nebraska and has a greater chance to return to some consistent level of success. Stu, what do you think of this? It was definitely bizarre, uh, to say the least. Uh, I don't think it had anything to do with an ESPN.com article, but it probably did have something to do with both Willie Taggart and Chad Morris, where these schools fired their coaches before they even got through two years. So Bill Moose, the AD, maybe wanting to make a statement that that's not, not that anybody thought they were going to fire him, but that we're not those schools. We understand that this is going to take time to rebuild. Here's a symbolic gesture 
to show that. Um, it, uh, I don't think it makes a huge difference at the end of the day, uh, but it's just the latest example of, I don't know, there is nothing more one-sided that I can think of right now than the dynamic between these coaches and the ADs who give them these, these like what leverage does Scott Frost have right now? Nobody was gonna, is going to hire Scott Frost away from Nebraska right now the way these first two years have gone. This was just kind of a gratuitous add-on. Yeah, I mean, look, I feel like Nebraska football, beyond just on the recruiting front, needs some something good to happen before the season ends. Because right now, I think there's been a lot of frustration in a lot of corners, and and uh, you know, it's it's been disappointing. And I think it's I think it's probably been for as much work as they felt like they had. I think it had to be surprising to the guys who work on that staff just to see, hey, this this. Not that this has been harder than they thought, but I think they just felt like they would have been gotten more traction in their in some of the games. And to be honest, and maybe uh, you know we could ask our guy Mitch Sherman, who's who's covers the team and is closer to it than both of us. But I feel like like it's almost like the high point of the season happened back in September, and it was a game we did where. Nebraska was at Colorado, and they had a big lead going to halftime. They didn't play great in the first half, but they were still up handily. And then all of a sudden, it was like the air went out of the balloon, and the balloon has just kind of been – it's like one of those balloons that has that's lost helium, and it's just kind of like flopping around the house. You know, they just – they need something good to happen, I, I think, just to, to build off it beyond just, okay, you know what, we're confident in Scott, and that's great. But I just feel like I think they need something to happen – this week and, and going forward. They've lost four straight games, 34-7 at Minnesota, 38-31 at home to Indiana, 30, the bad, the really bad one on the road to Purdue. And then this week at home, they lose 37-21 to Wisconsin. They play at Maryland this week. They better win that one. Uh, that would be really embarrassing. That would put them at 5-6 and six going into a home game against Iowa, who you just saw in person. Do you – what – what I'll play your favorite game? What percent chance do you give Nebraska to beat Iowa? And where's that game? That game is in Lincoln. Uh, I can't go higher than twenty five percent. Right, that's what I figured. So they're probably looking at five and seven, uh, and that's really disappointing. Just quick on the Hawkeyes for a second. Um, I mean, this is Chase Young is a phenomenal talent. People do not talk enough about what kind of player A.J. Epinesa from Iowa is. Biggest recruit Kirk Ferentz ever had has more than lived up to the hype. I mean, he was a monster. He had he had as much to do with, with Iowa knocking off uh, or ending the perfect season of, of the Gophers and knocking them from the unbeaten ranks. Just just a dominant player. And I, I couldn't uh, – it was about as impressive as, as I've seen somebody this season. He's awesome, and I think you're right. I think he gets overshadowed mostly because he plays for Iowa, who has three losses already. Uh, it would be interesting. I assume he's going to be a, 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 you know, I mean, Chase Young remains the the guy to beat, if you will. But I assume he'll be one of the highest um, defensive ends in the in the draft this year. Yeah, as we met with him on Friday. Really impressive, big personality, fun guy to be around, and and uh, just just a real special talent. Back to Nebraska real quick. You had um, you asked me on text the other day where I would rank Texas on the list of the season's biggest disappointments, and I said very high. But I think Nebraska has to be number one, right? 
Yes, I would agree with that. Um, I haven't thought about it beyond those two. Who would you say is a bigger disappointment of those two, though? Yeah, it, it, we'll see how it plays out, but um, that's it's a tough call. But I think, um, let's put it this way. Coming into the season, I thought there was a pretty good chance Texas would slide back a little bit from last year, given all the, the, the guys they lost on defense. Now, I didn't think they'd be 6-4 and four right now, but I thought there'd be a step back. But with Nebraska, we all expected... To, uh, to, to see significant progress going in the right direction. And it's gone, I would say they're worse than they were at this point last year. Last year, down the stretch, you remember they, they gave Ohio State a tough game. Uh, they they ended up 4-8 and eight after an 0-5 start, I want to say. This team has shown nothing to prove that it's going in the right direction. So I think i got to say Nebraska. It's Yeah, I mean, look, you had one, Texas was ranked 10, Nebraska was ranked... Uh, they were not ranked in the in the coaches poll. They were ranked twenty fourth in the AP poll preseason. I would say that was premature, but regardless, you know, to be right on the cusp there and be looking at a possible five and seven or even four and eight season is is pretty bad. And by the way, you I know would, who fits would, in that category, Stu, of big dud disappointments? Maybe maybe even bigger than these other ones. You want know ooh. I just realized there's one that I'm gonna I'm gonna take the fall for, and there's another one I'm gonna pin on you. Okay. Um, one in your backyard has been a real dud this year. Oh yeah, for sure, for sure. You want to tell people who it is? <laughs> well, it's not San Jose State, so uh, Stanford is now four and six after getting crushed at Washington State last week. And they might finish four and eight. They play Cal at home this week in, a, in what's considered kind of a toss-up game, and then they play Notre Dame. So, you know, a program that, interestingly, I when I did Stanford State of the Program this year, and I met with David Shaw for that in the spring, the very first thing I brought up was that if they won six games this year, they would end up they would get to a hundred wins on the hundred wins for the decade, which. Who would have ever thought Stanford would average 10 wins a year? Uh, but they're not going to get there, which is crazy to me after um, winning the Pac-12 three times, playing in the Pac-12 title game two years ago. Yes, they've been a big disappointment, no question. Other disappointments, and this one I will own because I did a state of the program on Syracuse. I thought they'd win double-digit games. Oof. They And a lot of other people did too. They're 4-6, and six, not, a, not a stretch that they could go 4-8. and eight. And then the other one who fits in this category, because they had a top 20, they were ranked top 25 in the preseason in the coaches poll. You want to take a guess at who this was? Missouri. No, not as good a journalism school. Oh, no, Missouri is ineligible for the coaches poll. So it not wasn't as good Missouri. a journalism school, but <laughs> similar vein, the Northwestern Wildcats. Gosh, they were ranked. They should be the biggest disappointment of all of this because they're two and eight. Wait, wait, wait. Were they they were actually ranked they in the were preseason? In the God, that bowl. seems like a million that seems like a million years ago. So I actually uh kept pretty close track of the Northwestern UMass game, hint hint, uh, to see how many point if they were actually gonna cover the forty point uh spread, which they came so close to doing and then a a snap went over the quarterback's head. Um I was on the right side of that one, by the way. 
yeah, I guess you have to say that they trump all of the other ones, right? They're two and eight, and the two wins are over UNLV and UMass. I think one of the more puzzling storylines of the whole season, uh, Hunter Johnson, five-star quarterback, good enough to be signed by Clemson. I know there have been some extenuating circumstances. But he, at the beginning of the game the other day, the broadcasters revealed that he was fourth on the depth chart. I believe they ended up putting four quarterbacks in the game and none of them were him. I, I mean, I know you talked, uh, at some point we talked on this podcast about how, like, the hit or miss with five-star quarterbacks. Uh, this one I've never seen anything like. Um, I'm going to ask you a trivia question here. Do you know, how old do you think you were the last time Northwestern lost double-digit games in one in a year? Well, I was a, I enrolled there in 1994, and they have not lost double-digit games during that time. They had a couple nine-loss seasons. So it's before that, and I'm going to go on a limb and say it was... How old were you in 1989? That's exactly the year I was going to guess. I was uh, 13. So think about that. They, uh, you know, in in so many ways, they changed this program that was like a, a laughingstock for many decades, and yet they're about to do something that they reach a low that they haven't reached in thirty years. It's so yes to answer the question of who's been the biggest disappointment. I think you got to I think you got to say them. They won their division just last year. Ian McFarland, regular uh, contributor to this, La Cañada, who is in Canada, uh, no. La Cañada, California. My bad. Ian brings up your your Arkansas candidates for the coaching job. There's going to be a lot of those uh, stories coming up where you write about candidates for the jobs that come open. And that's a good reason to remind you guys that if you haven't subscribed to The Athletic already, you can get it for 40% off by going to theathletic.com slash theaudible. Um, Bruce, I just finished your Arkansas piece on The Athletic where you mentioned Mike Leach for the Arkansas job as you did for Florida State and seemingly every other non-Metro job. This has to mean one of the following. One, part of your book deal was that you became his agent as well. Ouch. Two, your relationship with him has given you a unique perspective into the jobs that he wants most. Three, your relationship makes you keenly aware of how badly he wants out of Pullman. In this case, I think he's the perfect hit fit, perhaps better than Gus or Norvell, but privately hope he stays in Pullman forever because Chris Peterson owns him in every way. All right. The, he, he buried at the bottom that this is coming from a Washington fan. Um, so that is not the first comment I've seen to that effect uh, about you putting Leach on all these lists. So why don't you explain it? Okay. So thank you, Ian, for your question and also for the nice plug uh, for The Athletic in that question. Um, it's not one. I do not want any part of being Mike Leach's agent. That would be a very, very... I'd, have a head full of gray hair if I had to deal with him regularly. Um, two, I think two is probably more kind of in line. He and I, and, and this is full disclosure, uh, he and I do not talk about like, oh, this job versus that job. I actually talk to Mike Leach way less than uh, I do a lot of other coaches. Um, and three, your relationship makes you keenly aware of how badly he wants out of Pullman. At this, I don't think that's the case. To be, to be blunt, um, I think he likes his AD now. Before, and this is not a, a, a reflection on Pat Chun at all, but before, uh, maybe four or five years ago, when he first got there, he loved the chancellor they had there, 
uh, Elson Floyd, who had who passed away. He also Bill Moose hired him, and that was a really good situation. A lot of other issues have, had surfaced at Washington State financially that made it a little bit even tougher of a job. Um, I haven't heard anything about Leach wanting desperately out of Pullman from him or anybody close to him. To be honest, uh, I the the part here that this is what I'm playing off of, and again, I'm being I'm being honest with it is Mike Leach really wanted the Tennessee job a couple of years ago. It was uh, his people had accepted the job and then it got pulled out from under him as the Tennessee thing and John Curry's tenure there imploded. Um, but I think for a lot of folks, it's seen as what would Leach do with more resources? And this isn't a knock on Washington State, but Florida State, you have a much better chance to win big at Florida State than you do at Wazoo. Arkansas, I think it's a it's a tougher job than than certainly Florida State is, given that it's in the SEC West. But um, I think there's some some things there that make him a viable option. And here's the part why why I think Leach is somebody I think people would consider at least if you're at Arkansas. You have to do things probably a little bit different. It didn't work with Brett Bielema, who was a proven winner at Wisconsin, won 40 games in the last four years there. Then you hired Chad Morris, who was kind of an up-and-coming coach, was well thought of as a coordinator at Clemson, went to SMU, got that program elevated, but didn't exactly win big there. I think he laid a little bit of the foundation for Sonny Dykes, and Sonny Dykes has elevated it. But again, what I'm getting at is, I think you're looking at it going, okay, which direction would they go? Mike Leach, I think, is a little bit of a is a wild card hire. And I'm not saying it's a desperate move, but I just think it's one that I I think if you're not going to get Gus Malzahn, you're not going to get, if you don't get Mike Norvell, who else out there you, you feel like can come in there and rally your fan base and give your program an identity. And I think Leach does that. Look, if and when Clay Helton gets fired, Mike Leach will not be on that list. Uh, there are certain places, if Brian Kelly ever leaves Notre Dame, Mike Leach will not be on that list. There are, there are a bunch of big programs I don't think Mike Leach would be a fit at. I'm not sure he'd be a fit necessarily at Florida State, but... I think I think he's a I think he's a candidate. I mean, he won 11 games at Washington State last year. They'd never done that before. As quirky as he is, and he is super quirky. I mean, I can say this, you know, just having worked on a book with him. He is every bit as odd as people think he is. But he wins a lot of games and he wins games at places a lot of other coaches wouldn't. So that's that's kind of why it's the way it is and why I wrote what I wrote. And I feel like this. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but but there's a there's been a longing on his part to show that his system works at a at a. I mean, Arkansas is not a blue blood, but you know what I mean, like a, in the SEC or at a yeah. Not I a mean, go, going back, right going back to all the way to when Donald Trump was trying to get him the Miami job, which was was that when Randy Shannon got hired, uh, yeah, or Al Golden. I mean, that was a long time ago. Uh, so yeah, I think that's probably a, a driving factor as well. It'll be interesting to see uh, how much, how seriously he gets considered. Um, the last question is also for you, Bruce. You were at Iowa, 
we talked a lot about the, the Floyd of Rosedale, but we didn't talk about the greatest new tradition in, in college football. Uh, Matthew Field asks, Bruce, did you wave? Did you do the Iowa wave at the Children's Hospital? I absolutely did wave. And, I, you know, I was at that point I was on the Minnesota sideline, which is a little closer to the hospital. And I got to be honest. So I had talked to uh, Casey O'Brien, who's the, the Minnesota holder, and he's a four-time cancer survivor. Casey and I talked uh, before the game. And there was a little boy who has been battling cancer. There's a nine-year-old boy named Emmett who's been battling cancer since he was two. And family of big, big Iowa fans. And he had seen Casey speak uh, at the Big Ten media luncheon. And it was obviously a very empowering and inspiring speech. And uh, we've talked a, a bunch, and I've written about how Casey the amazing work he's done to impact other kids who are battling cancer and visiting hospitals. Well, Emmett and his family went to the Minnesota team hotel the night before the game. And I talked to Emmett's dad and he said he was just very, very nervous and, and just for his son and what it did for his son and how, how important uh, Casey has been in his battle. And, um, you know, when I looked up, and I, I I don't want to speak for you on this, Stu, but I do feel like as a parent, especially as a parent of young kids, um, it was hard for me to not, to, to wave and to, to not get a little bit choked up because you're seeing the hands come back from the top, you know, from the top floor and to see little kids. I mean, man, that is... Like, I would get goosebumps when I heard Casey tell his story to me the first time. I got it when he when he was telling me about it, Emmett. And just to know, again, I think as a parent, it's not to say if you don't have kids, you can't have a, a level of empathy for this. And, and it doesn't get you in the heart and in the stomach. Um, but for me, it's just been different as a parent to see it and to see what those... You know, I, I thought so much about it. Even you know, our our, uh, our friend George Schroeder from USA Today. I think the last time I was in Iowa, he went up there to do a story. And a lot of folks have written really terrific stories on Children's Hospital and the Wave and that tradition. But George went there, I think, to spend game day there. And I thought about that story uh, during the first and second quarters as you're standing there, and everybody's doing it. I mean. Uh, you're around not just the people who are on the sideline, all the fans. I mean, it's it's something. You have to see it, be part of it. And I don't know how you don't get choked up. I really don't. The entire Minnesota team, uh, P.J. Fleck and the entire team, went out onto the field and did the wave, right? Yeah, and they did that. We did the this game two years ago, and I remember they did that as well. Um, it's just... It's just, I mean, bigger than football is the only way I can say it. As, as we're talking about this, you know, you were, you were kind of lighthearted, joking last week, I need to come out there for the Floyd game. But I'm now realizing I do need to go to an Iowa game to see it for myself because, first of all, I think, like you said, being a parent of a young child, I'm, I'm positive I would start bawling during it. Um, and uh, it's, I mean, look, college football traditions, for the most part, date back you know, decades, century, whatever, this one just kind of sprang up in the last few years when they built that hospital. And it is, without question, one one of the coolest things that I think uh, 
goes on in a in a football stadium on a game. So I do I do want to see that for myself at some point soon. All right, that's all the time we have for this week. Be sure to come back on Thursday to the Athletic app to hear the Audible Extra where we give our picks for the week. We'll see you next time. If you enjoy the Audible, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review and a rating if you could, too. It helps us get the word out. Our producer is John Hayes. Our theme song is Dangerous by Kevin and the Octaves. You can download their music on Spotify or Apple Music. Follow me on Twitter at SLMandel. Follow Bruce at Bruce Feldman CFB. And if you're not yet a subscriber to The Athletic, what are you waiting for? You can get 40% off an annual subscription by using this link, theathletic.com slash theaudible. That's 40% off your subscription to The Athletic. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.